I'm Chanel, and I will be bringing the Bible reading to us tonight. It comes from Nehemiah 4, verse 1 to 23, also known as the whole chapter. (laughs) So I'll give you a second to turn. Alrighty. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins for your sight, from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders." So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They plotted... They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it, or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out. At that time, I said to the people, let every man and his helper 
stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. I'm Pastor Brendan. I'm delighted to be with you, bringing this message to you guys as we go into our, further into our study of the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into that study right now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much again for your word. We pray you open up your word to our hearts today and open up our hearts to what you have to say to us in your word. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are returning to the book of Nehemiah, and this is chapter four in that story. Uh, This is a chapter about, at least on one level, earthly opposition to God's will and our part in executing God's will in spite of that. Uh, It's about the way we respond to opposition as well. And the structure of it is this simple back and forth that we just heard. Our enemies did this, so I did that. They heard I did this, so they did this, but then I did that. Uh, action and reaction, and every time the Jews are required to respond to something, uh, a threat or mockery or opposition to God's people doing God's work, then Nehemiah, as their leader there, he is praying, encouraging, he is clinging to what he knows is God's will, uh, which will not be allowed to fail. Even as individuals might suffer, even as individuals might die, God's will will not be thwarted. And it's kind of like an anxious and powerful passage because Nehemiah himself has the same kind of interaction uh, that we as believers do with God uh, for most of our lives. He believes and prays and strives to act righteously, um, but God doesn't appear to him directly in a cloud or a or flaming shrubbery to speak to him directly. He's not a prophet. He's a cupbearer. He's probably a eunuch. Uh, he's a political official. He is not a Moses, for example. Um, He's a province administrator for Judea. He's a bureaucrat. Uh, He knows this work of rebuilding Jerusalem is God's will for him, not because God summoned him to a mountaintop and told him, this is my will for you, but because he had such a reaction emotionally when he heard that his people who had followed the prophet Ezra to the land that they were suffering and they were in peril. He was so moved that he wept and he mourned and went into fasting for days and he recognized his own response to that as God putting this on his heart, a turn of phrase that's actually used in the book, that God put this on his heart. And it might be fair to say that the, uh, the covenantal training wheels for the people of God have come off at this point in the Old Testament. Uh, part of the theme we see throughout the Old Testament is God uh, progressively becoming uh, less directly, miraculously uh, involved in his plan and more involved through the actions of the people that he is driving and inspiring as they accumulate more law and more understanding of, of uh, God's law for them and his plan for them. God seems to withdraw the frequency with which he intervenes with big, powerful miracles and obvious shows of his divinity. Uh, so God doesn't send any lions to eat the people who mock Nehemiah, for example, as he has done in previous cases. Uh, he's not decimating anyone with fire from the sky. He's not running them down with an army of angels. And Nehemiah remains a faithful servant uh, without expecting a miraculous kind of deliverance. He expects and prays for God to work through his people to accomplish his purposes. And I'm sure he would have been very happy if the clouds had opened up and then uh, Sanballat the Horonite had been turned to stone by the light of God, but he doesn't. It's not a flashy calling that he was drawn to, but a calling it is, and one he rises to. And so it's worth a, a quick recap of the journey of God's people to get here. Um, 
because this is a story that has its parallels in the older scriptures as well. Because this is the third time, basically the third time that God's people have been called out of the nations and into the promised land. Uh, the first time was with Abraham. Abraham was called out of Mesopotamia, that sort of Babylon area. Uh, Mesopotamians, they worshiped their own gods at that time. Uh, and it seems that much of Abraham's family worshiped a, a moon god named Sin. Um, just a coincidence, the name of that moon god to the, the word we use for sin is in offending God directly. But uh, we can judge this because the names of people in his family, like Laban and Terah, his father, and uh, Sarai, Sarah's name before it was changed, they all have this sort of Mesopotamian moon god connection to them. So he came out of an idolatrous pagan religion because that's when God was beginning the story of his people, the Hebrews. And archaeologically, the place where Abraham's brother uh, Haran settled had lots of this sin moon god stuff. But God calls Abraham out of that mess. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people and go into the land that I will show you and I will make you there a mighty nation. So Abraham goes there. He buys land, he esteems himself among the people. Uh, he comes out of the nations and into the promised land. And then you get Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, big famine, all the Hebrews, descendants of Abraham go down to Egypt for generations. Um, the Egyptians get sick of how successful they are and enslave them. We end up with the book of Exodus. Moses is God's instrument in bringing them back to the border of the promised land and then Joshua over it again uh, to reconquer. This time they aren't walking in with a small but prosperous little tribe of people uh, winning friends and, uh, and having some battles in the land. They are a roaring tide of millions of uh, recently freed slaves flooding into the promised land. There is fighting, there is bloodshed, there is miracles, the walls of Jericho fall to the trumpet blast, God holds the sun in the sky, all kinds of stuff. It's hard, it's bloody, they take back that land despite the opposition of the local antagonists like the, Ammonite, uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites who were themselves descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. But they mostly succeed, they take the promised land more or less. We get judges and kings, Israelites prove they are too prone to corruption and idolatry to maintain themselves on the earth without following God's covenant as he has given it to them. And so they lapse into this cycle of betraying God and turning to idols and other gods. God allows the world to close in and squeeze them and then they run back to God for protection. This happens over and over again until God decides he will tolerate it no longer. He says, fine, you're done, you're out of the promised land again. The Jews get dragged off to Babylon in what we call the exile. Ezekiel and Daniel and Lamentations are around this time. God permits the Jews to go into exile in Babylon so that when they return, they might have learned to rely upon him. They may have given up that idolatry. And now with Ezra and Nehemiah, that time has come. The Babylonian Empire has fallen, the Persians have taken over then, uh, and Abraham's descendants are ready to return to the Promised Land. Uh, Abraham and his sons established God's people in that land. Moses and after the wilderness, uh, Joshua established them there again. And now Ezra the prophet and then Nehemiah the politician, the bureaucrat, um, are leading them back there again. So there's this huge weight of history on them. And particularly on Nehemiah, he must be asking the whole time, am I worthy? The people who came before me are Abraham and Moses uh, doing this thing. What if I mess it up? What if I'm the reason God's plan fails? But Nehemiah has come to rely on God. If no one else has, he has certainly learned the lessons that God wanted his people to learn in Babylon. He believes and he prays that God is working out his plan even in the absence of a miraculous vision or a sign because, to paraphrase Jesus speaking to Thomas 400 years later, they believe because they saw how much more blessed 
are they who do not see and yet believe. So let's go through this chapter again a bite at a time. If my clicker is going to work for me. Whoop. All right. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins in your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. And this, um, this kind of is the narrative form of what happened in chapter 3, what Charlie covered about uh, the gates and the segments of the walls being built by the people who came back, by the exiles. Um, but it's kind of a focus more on the interaction between Nehemiah and these antagonists who don't want to see this wall built at all. And chapter 3 memorializes those families and those groups that distinguished themselves in that task and throws some shade on those who refused to work. Chapter 4 is looking at the same process again, but with this kind of external view. So these, these guys, they mock and they sneer. Um, they want the Jews to fail. It's like it's a mildly funny sort of series of jabs. They throw at them, they're snickering, playing off each other, even though Sam Blatt's obviously extremely insulted, very angry. Uh, you can't believe these Jews have the goal to come down here and try rebuilding this failed city of Jerusalem as if they are not surrounded by people who will destroy them. And he says, what, are they going to put up this wall? Are they going to put it up in a day? Do they think they're going to slap together a fortification that can keep us out so they can keep making their little sacrifices and do their little worship and prosper in their secret little club of Jews while we're out here getting taxed and kicked around by the Persians? And Tobiah, being the clever one he is, chimes in with his own comment, oh, I think if a fox jumped on that wall, it would fall down. It's the same shoddy builder joke that's been used for thousands of years. We enjoy it today in various productions of Looney Tunes and Simpsons and Three Stooges and that kind of thing in our um, present era. Build things, Sparrow lands on it, falls down. Ho, ho, ho. Um, it's a good gag, not very original. Tobias should try harder. Not a good roast. Then, Nehemiah does this thing, which he does a few times in the book, which is he stops uh, the narrative to insert this kind of direct present tense prayer. In verse 4, he doesn't say, and then I prayed, hear us. If this were a play, then it would be a soliloquy, the lights would go dark, Nehemiah would be spotlit, he'd turn to look directly at the audience, and then Sky would and pray before everything would go back to normal. Now, this might not seem substantially different from writing, and then I prayed, and then telling us his prayer. Um, but it certainly removes the prayer a little bit from the time that it was given. It's kind of like Nehemiah saying to the Jews who will read this book in the time that follows, I prayed to God that he would protect his people from their enemies. You need to pray to God that he will protect his people from their enemies. Only God can protect his people from their enemies. And may every hand raised against God's plan fail now and forever. It's kind of like embossed out of the text in the way it's put there. And then he ducks back into the narrative when uh, they half finished the wall because the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and all the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. 
They plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir trouble up against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard and, uh, at night and day to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right among there among them and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived um, near came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So the enemies of the Jews, including the people of Ashdod at this point, a formerly Philistine city that um, is now still under the same imperial domain of the Persians as everyone else, um, with no love for the Israelites nonetheless, has gotten in on the act. They've caught wind of this and they are joining in on the, uh, on the hating parade. The first threat that is going, uh, that these guys conjure up is they're going to like maybe bum rush the Jews, just charge through there as soon as they see a weakness and it'll all be over. So they keep a guard around the clock and they give them no opportunity. And then the problems start to mount. Nehemiah gets hit with three at once. This is sort of a pattern in the book where Nehemiah will get problem one, problem two, problem three, and then he'll have to stop and figure them all out right at once. Uh, but for now in verse 10, the workers are building the wall, they're half done, they're building as fast as they can because of the threat of invasion, but they're nearly exhausted and they're soon gonna break completely. Verse 11 tells us the enemies are still outside, still waiting for a weakness. And so if they tell the people, for example, all right, that's good work so far, let's take a nap for a couple of days, let's take some time off, the army's just gonna jump over the wall in the weak spots that aren't built up yet and kill them and sabotage this wall. So they haven't given up yet. Verse 12 tells us the Jews in the surrounding area, the families of these builders, those who are probably still working farms and minding the children and making food, they are begging them 10 times over, wherever you turn, they're still going to attack us. If you station your troops on one side of the city, they'll come and attack us on the other side. You're surrounded and outnumbered, what are we gonna do? And if the troops uh, scatter all around to protect the Jews in all the surrounding areas, then no one's protecting the workers, and guess what? Then they're dead. So what's Nehemiah's response to this? Well, he never ceases trusting God. And God doesn't cease to protect and guide him. But there is no army of angels. They don't uh, walk backwards around the wall to make it rebuild automatically. Uh, God doesn't send uh, manna from heaven so that they can abandon their farms. All the resource they need to do God's work in that moment is within the people there. And so that's where Nehemiah looks for his solution. From verse 13 through to the end of the chapter. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all of the people of Judah who were building the wall. Uh, those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword upon his side as he worked. But the man who, uh, who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, Our, um, God will fight with us. So we continued uh, the work until half the men holding spears, uh, with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night. 
so they can serve us by, as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor my guards took uh, with me, took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. A quick note on even when he went for water. The little, there's a little note there in a lot of Bibles that says, we don't know what this phrase means in the Hebrew there um, because what does it mean even when he went for water? I would suggest the most intuitive way to understand that is even when I went to make water. As in, you always have a sword with you at all times. Nehemiah uses the gifts that God has given him. He's not a warrior, he's not a prophet, he is not a general, he is a public servant. He's an organizer of people, he's a bureaucrat. He doesn't have quite enough soldiers, he doesn't have quite enough workers. All right, now all the soldiers are workers and all the workers are soldiers. Uh, at every gap in the wall yet to be built, I want soldiers facing out, ready to protect the Jews in the surrounding area. When you come off duty, get a little rest. Then you're up at first light to start your work shift again. If you have a brick in one hand, you better have a sword in the other hand. And when you're exhausted, you come back, you grab a spear, you can rest by looking heavily armed, frowning out at the valley at those people. If you're not sleeping, you're building. If you are not guarding, uh, if you are not building, then you are guarding. And if you are not guarding, then you are sleeping. All the farmers are going to sleep inside the walls at night. If you're not farming, then you're guarding. If you're not guarding, then you're sleeping. If you're not sleeping, then you're farming. This applies also to nobles and officials and pencil neck bean counters. Keep a sword with you at all times. If you are not counting beans, you are guarding. If you are not guarding, you are sleeping. If you're not sleeping, you are counting beans. If you hear a trumpet, we are under attack. Drop what you are doing. Grab your weapon. Go to that trumpet. They may attack any of us at any time, but they cannot beat all of us at once. God will not permit his purposes to be defeated if we only remain faithful to him. And so they do, and they work with all their hearts, building and guarding and farming and bean counting. The enemy never sees the opportunity they are looking for where they seem weak enough to attack, so they don't attack, and the work proceeds unabated, and that's the story that we have in chapter four. There's that one little snippet of kind of out-of-time prayer uh, for God to help his people when they are being mocked and cursed by the nations. The rest is crisis management in the spirit of dedication to God's will. But what I'd really like to focus on for a couple of minutes here are these opponents, uh, these guys who come up there, these other characters in the story and what they are there for and what they mean, um, what they specifically have invested in this thing. Because this isn't the first time we've seen them. They showed up in chapter two. Uh, it's not the last time we'll see them for the duration of this story. They'll stick around to the end of the book. There's the three who are named in chapter two and their presence is felt for the duration of the whole book, Sanballat the Horonite, uh, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab. And sometimes Nehemiah doesn't mention Geshem, just the Arabs. Um, sometimes the book focuses on the Samaritan army that seems to follow Sanballat. Um, but these names, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, uh, who are they and why do they matter? And it's worth fleshing out uh, King Artaxerxes a little as well to feel the real history that's all kind of uh, wedged all through this account. So for a start, these are all local power players in the region where Israel once ruled and where Judah once ruled, but it's been a long time and there's been only rubble there. And tribes like the Ammonites, we may remember, have been around in the Bible since Genesis. So it's a little like, these guys again, still around, still causing trouble. Shouldn't they be gone by now? But it's not quite like that. Israel's always been surrounded by groups, by tribes and little kingdoms that don't like them, that are their rivals in the area. It's a little different this time because all of these folks are beneath the power of King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. But Artaxerxes is 
He's pretty happy to allow chieftains and kings in his empire to pay him money, and he mostly leaves them alone at this point. He's not super involved in local politics when he doesn't have to be, because quite frankly, he can't afford to be. He has bigger problems. Artaxerxes has just recently, in the last several years, put down a rebellion of his subjects in Egypt, and he would really like things to calm down for a while. Artaxerxes' grandfather is a guy called Darius. Uh, Darius was the first Persian king to try and invade Greece, and he almost succeeded before he got slapped away, and the Persian army suffered its first major defeat. The Persian Empire began to suffer there. This is why the Egyptians were so ornery. They could feel that the Persian grip was weakening. Darius' son Xerxes then took over when Darius died, and he was a vicious man. He crushed that first rebellion in Egypt, and then Babylon, who used to be the big boy empire, the one that dragged the Israelites, uh, dragged the, the, uh, the Jews away into captivity, they started to rebel. And Xerxes crushed that rebellion handily as well. And he drove home the point by going to Babylon and telling them, you're not behaving yourself, and then you don't get your own gods, no Babylonian gods for you. He takes the statue of Marduk they have, their king of their gods, it was very sacred to them. Uh, the king of Babylon would take the crown from that statue every year as a sort of a ritual they had, it was the center of their religion. He took that statue and destroyed it. It represented the presence of Marduk among his people. It's the equivalent of the way the Babylonians came in and smashed the temple, uh, the one that is being rebuilt, in fact, at this time in the story. So Xerxes didn't make many friends, and then he heads over to invade Greece again. He wants to accomplish what his father could not accomplish, and he gets defeated in devastating fashion, particularly by the Spartans, in that area, if you've seen the movie 300, you've seen the very stylized comic book version of how that goes. Our arrows will blot out the sun, we'll fight in the shade. This is madness, this is Sparta. Guy gets kicked down a hole. It's very exciting. Um, Xerxes eventually dies. His son Artaxerxes takes over. He keeps fighting the Greeks in this kind of retreat, uh, keeps putting down rebellions that his grandfather and his father have spent their lives fighting and putting down. Finally, he squashes these rebellions. He loses a bunch of territory to the Greeks. But just a couple of years before Nehemiah makes his request, he makes peace with the Greeks, at least temporarily. He's the king of an empire that is running out of steam and is shaking itself apart. And then Nehemiah comes along and says, hey, uh, do you mind if the rest of my famously rebellious, ethnically exclusive countrymen go back to our homeland uh, over near Egypt and the other rebellious peoples? Um, the other rebellious tribes, we rebuild our walls and reestablish our extremely exclusive and jealous God's worship. Promise it won't end badly. Uh, but as we know from chapter one, Artaxerxes likes Nehemiah. God has engendered a positive relationship there. He's prepared this to happen. And maybe he thinks it would be nice to have a friendly walled city down there in case Egypt flips its lid again. But the conditions under which these guys are living are like that. They have the Persian Empire just above them, really wanting them to get along, to not cause much of a fuss. Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem are all leaders of men. They are all trying not to provoke such a conflict that Persia wants to step in and backhand them off the map for causing another headache. But they all know who the Jews are to them, and they don't like them, and they certainly don't like having them have the favor of the king to rebuild and reconstitute their nation. So they're looking for a fight they can win quickly. Because even with overwhelming numbers, if they start a fight and the Jews manage to hold out, then Nehemiah might be able to call on Artaxerxes as the favorite kid calls on their intervention of their dad in a fight in the backyard. 
As in, Dad, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem are hitting me. We're not even touching him. And he'll be so mad that he has to come downstairs. And then he'll always take Nehemiah's side because he's the favorite. Anyway, let's look at these guys. Sanballat the Horonite first. Okay? Sanballat seems to have a position of honor and leadership in the Samaritan army. Uh, even though he's not himself a Samaritan, he's a Horonite. And we know these Samaritans, uh, they have the mixed descendants of the Israelites and the local peoples in the area, but they have their own identity now. They don't think of themselves as Israelites or as Jews, certainly not. Um, but Sambalite is a Horonite. This means his home country, his home province is Haran over in Mesopotamia, the land where Abraham's family came from before God called them out of Mesopotamia. Abraham, if you have a really good deep recall of Genesis, had two brothers, uh, that's Nahor and Haran or Haran, and Sambalite is connected way back to the Hebrew history in this way. Like remember before I mentioned Abraham's family came out of the worship of this moon god named Sin? Well, Sanbalat means sin begets. San comes from sin, Balat means bring forth, as in to produce a child. So it's not obvious to readers who don't dig for it or on the first pass, but taking all that into account, Sanbalat the Horonite, just by being there, just with that name, is saying, I represent the godless history Abraham was called out of, and I stand for the old ways your people abandoned. That's kind of Sanballat's deal, his significance just showing up there in this story. And Tobiah the Ammonite, he's a little different. Tobiah's name means the Lord is good, so he probably has some Israelite in his family, but he himself is called an Ammonite. Now, you might remember who the Ammonites are. They are the children of, uh, of Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew that came with him to the promised land, but split off, lost his way, uh, eventually ended up with this shameful legacy where his descendants, the Ammonites, worship Molech, this child sacrifice, craving monster of a god, um, a horrible idol. One of the Canaanite gods of that area, in fact, like Baal, uh, that Israelites struggled with worshiping for so long since they arrived in that land. It's the kind of idolatry which is the reason that, sent, uh, that God sent the Jews into exile in the first place. So, so Tobiah and the Ammonites, they can't help but also, in addition to the threat they present, they represent this compromise and this loss of faith that God, uh, loss of faith in God that has plagued the Jews ever since they came to the promised land, their inability to adhere to the covenant they've made with God. And Geshem's interesting as well. Geshem is the only Arab who is named in scripture. Um, the Arabs are descendant from Ishmael and Abraham's first son is Ishmael. And so the child he had with uh, Hagar because he and Sarah did not at that time believe that God could give them a child themselves, right? So the Arabs, uh, at the time, they had their own spun-off kind of uh, bastardized version of idolatry, which involved a ruling moon god and three goddesses and um, sort of a warped half backstep towards uh, the, the pre, uh, the, the faith that Abraham's family had and combining it with some other idolatry. But, these forces standing outside the wall and mocking the descendants of Abraham are themselves descendants of Abraham's brother and Abraham's nephew and Abraham's son. They conjure up reference just by virtue of who they are to the idolatry and the darkness out of which the Jews have come, their failure to remain faithful to the covenant God had given them, and the flaw in their faith in God, even in Abraham, the great patriarch who is known for his faith. They are territorial enemies, they're old rivals, but they're also everything the people of God become when they reject God. They are sneering, they are plotting, they are wallowing in their own jealousy. 
They're telling them to give up. Your wall is pathetic. You're going to rebuild your dumb town from the ruins you found it in. Are you going to offer sacrifices to a God who didn't save you um, and defeat the enemies any more than ours did? Give up, lie down, accept it. You're not the chosen of the true God. You are descendants just like us of a messed up ancient family that used to think it was a big deal but hardly seems to matter anymore. It's like the ghosts of Israel's regrets and mistakes and the bad decisions that were made in their history are haunting the Jews as they try to remember who they are. As Ezra, the prophet, is literally dusting off the book of the Lord to prepare to teach it again in Jerusalem for the first time in generations. The same law in which Moses gave a warning in Deuteronomy where he said, the Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror, a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where God will drive you. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because the locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because the worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over your, all your trees and the crops of your land. The foreigners who reside among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. They will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head, but you will be the tail. This is what Moses said, predicting to his own people as he was uh, bringing them into the promised land, as he was on the verge of uh, sending them in there into the promised land. And all that had come to pass. All this was something that the people had to reckon that God had indeed put upon them. But Moses also said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you, uh, uh, and you come on you, uh, sorry, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return, the Lord your God, and obey him uh, with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and will have compassion on you and gather you from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you've been banished to the most distant part of the land under the heavens. From there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. The lesson is the same as it always has been, faithfulness to a God who is faithful to you. And not a presumptuous faithfulness that pretends that it knows more than it does either. I can kind of imagine if Nehemiah was rebuilding Jerusalem as a revival project today, he may have um, peers in uh, sort of his uh, ecumenical ministry saying, oh, carrying swords and spears, that just tells me that you don't have faith that God is really going to defend you. God delights to work through his people. And though we can always come to God in prayer, we don't have the right to demand of him the manner in which he will respond. Sometimes God sends a rain of fire on his enemies. Sometimes he sends an army of angels. Sometimes he just wants his people to stand up and fight faithfully for his sake. And knowing that deeply, uh, since they're seeking the will of God, even if God would let them fall before their enemies, knowing that his purposes will not be thwarted because he has spoken them and his will will be done. Knowing that, really knowing that in a way uh, that does not require a faith booster shot of a certain experience or miraculous healing is how someone like Nehemiah, a bean-counting bureaucrat, a 
uh, eunuch cupbearer who probably never fought a day in his life or built anything with his hands until now. It's how he can stand with courage in the middle of a ruin surrounded by people who want him dead and say, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families and your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Now Jesus came to the kingdom that Nehemiah rebuilt. With his death and resurrection, Jesus forged together this kingdom of God's people with the kingdom of God and he located it not within the stone of temples or walls but in the hearts and the households and the presence of the people who call him Lord and Savior. We are the inheritors of the blessing of Abraham and that relationship with God but the covenant that God has spoken to us that he has spoken as God's will for us is kind of the opposite of what the Jews were doing since that work has been greatly completed. We are not supposed to build a walled city and give sacrifices in the temple and resist the influence of any nation beyond us. We are supposed to go out into the nations to live as sacrifices ourselves and to build up a kingdom of disciples who worship the God of Abraham whose work continues in the people of his son, Jesus Christ. And there is no shortage of opposition to this great work either. They have come before us, they will be after us. They come from a government level, they come from uh, opposing faith, they come from a godless world, and Lord help us all, sometimes they seem to come from within the kingdom itself. But God has spoken it. So we ought to go to that work, knowing God's purposes will be fulfilled. Whether we see it completed ourselves or not, we build ourselves and then our families and then anyone who will listen into disciples with an effort that takes the whole of our hearts. And we do so expecting opposition because there is always opposition. But we know that God is faithful to his people. He is forgiving to those who repent, but ultimately those who stand against him in any form will not succeed. So whatever enemy has distracted you or discouraged you, demons from your past that you thought you had escaped or mistakes you wish you hadn't made that you can't let go of, um, weaknesses that get the better of you even now when you thought you would be stronger by now. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and praise God it's not a fight that requires the spilling of blood for us today but still there remains an enemy, the enemy of God, the devil, the enemy that is uh, inherent in the world we occupy, the enemy in the flesh, all of these things, we must fight against opponents to the work of God in us and in our loved ones. But our Lord is, in fact, great and awesome. And it's a fight that Jesus rose from the grave to show us he has already won. So let's pray. Father God, you call us, the nations of a world that has despised its creator, back into your embrace and you make us worthy of that invitation through a blessing that we did not earn. You do it through the saving sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, and we know that the battle is won. We know that we live in a world that is in some sense running out the clock until your son returns but we also know that you have given us purpose and mission in this world, that we pray that you lay upon our hearts the weight of that purpose and that mission. 
We pray that you give us the wisdom to use the skills you've given us for your ends, the courage to do so in the face of the opposition of your enemies, and the faith, Lord, to remember always that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. You are great and awesome, God. And in the battle for your gospel in the world, for the discipleship of our families and for the stewardship of ourselves, Lord, we will submit to you and we will not be afraid. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.